0: Hey everybody, it's Eric Tornberg, co-founder and partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Mark Goldenson, Village Global Network Leader, founder of VentureKit, previous founder of Breakthrough. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. We're here today to talk about mental health startups, building digital health startups, and building companies broadly. Mark, why don't you give a brief background
1: of your experience building a company in the mental health space? Sure. It started when I came out to the Bay Area for college to go to Stanford. And uh, strangely, it started with Star Trek. When I was in high school, I loved Star Trek Next Generation and loved uh, the idea of the holodeck. And a friend of me said, you know, the holodeck actually exists. And I said, What are you talking about? And he said, Well, there's this thing called lucid dreaming, mm-hmm. where you can guide your dream content. You can sometimes control it. You have full sensation and perception, but no physical or social constraints. And I thought, this sounds amazing. I don't know if I believe it. He gave me this book called Exploring the World of Lucid Dreaming uh, by Dr. Stevenberg. And I read about it, tried some of the techniques, and then started to have lucid dreams. Wow. And I was already interested in psychology and neuroscience. So I thought, this is amazing. And when I thought about where I wanted to go to college, I thought, well, I'd actually like to help bring this to the world and understand why more people don't do this. And I think the main answer was it was still pretty challenging for a lot of people. So I thought, OK, I'm going to go to Stanford. And this is where Dr. Steven Berger was. I got in, came to uh, the psych department and did four years of research on the, the neuroscience of lucid dreaming using oh simultaneous EEG fMRI to uh, study what happens in the brain right before and during a lucid dream. And so what I learned from that is I think I continue to be excited about science and research, but I am happier when I'm working in a team and building product. Uh, I did a company during the dot com boom uh, that was trying to bring small businesses online and uh, worked at PayPal as a product manager, started a online game show network called Play Cafe. I was trying to basically do HQ trivia in 2007, which was challenging because the iPhone had just come out. And it was like the crappy version that didn't uh, have great internet access. And uh, and then from that, that experience with live video, because we had live actors just like HQ, came the idea for Breakthrough. How can I apply that live video to therapy? I think a theme here was an interest in connect- connection, in mental health, in community, and in the last two companies about how to apply a live video. Cool.
0: So, yeah, let's get into what was Breakthrough and how did the idea evolve over time? How did you sort of navigate the idea maze that is
1: where to build a company in mental health? Right. Well, so it started with, with how can we apply in live video because of this experience from Play Cafe. And I looked around and I had several experiences in, in the study of psychology. I found therapy personally useful. I was a, a counselor on a teen lifeline and uh, in a program at the VA when I was in college. And so I was familiar with what I would consider four major problems in the mental health care system. The first is high cost. It's over 200 billion dollars spent in on mental health in the United States on mental health and substance abuse. Uh, and then at individual level, this is over about thousand dollars per course of treatment. Uh, if you don't have insurance, it includes medications, travel, finding a uh, sitter if you have someone at home, uh, leaving work. The difficulty of accessing care. So over 90 million Americans live in areas designated as having a shortage of mental health providers. So I think it's over 75% of people in small towns have access to zero psychiatrists. And these are the providers that people don't know that prescribe medication. And so if you have ADHD, PTSD, depression, anxiety, and you could benefit from medication, what do you do? The answer is people tend to self-medicate with drugs, They go to the ER and try and get Prozac, uh, or they don't get care and they get worse. Uh, And we know this from the data. So access is a problem. A third issue is stigma. Uh, It's getting better in the United States, but still worse than in a lot of other countries where therapy and talking about mental health is more accepted. And then the fourth is provider fit, which I think is less, less appreciated. But when you look at the literature, what drives positive outcomes in mental health treatment, what I read is that the number one driver is therapeutic alliance, which is a fancy way of saying your connection with your provider. How much do you trust them? Do you like them? Do you think they're competent? And are you going to open up about what's going on so that you can get better care? So what fascinated me was that these four issues of cost, access, stigma, and provider fit can all be significantly improved by the internet. And that's what Breakthrough trying to do is to deliver that along with the other major insight I had from the early research was the importance of getting reimbursement.
0: Right. And so what did you learn during that process?
1: So it was about a three or four month research process with patients, providers, insurers. I already knew that the product could be built. There's no black magic there. It feels like black magic sometimes to the payers. Like web forms are amazing. But for us, we knew it was, it was doable. Um, so the number one about about reimbursement. So 90% of mental health care spending is funded by a public payer like Medicare and Medicaid or a private payer like Blue Shield and Aetna. And so most companies that came before Breakthrough understandably wanted to go for a self-pay market. It's a lot simpler. It's just a two-sided marketplace, which is hard enough, right? Patients and providers. And I'll use provider to mean counselor, therapist, psychologist, psychiatrist, includes all those. And uh, the problem is for Consumers, they now have a choice between paying only their copay, which could be twenty five fifteen dollars zero dollars to see some provider in person or pay a hundred to two hundred dollars or more online and a much smaller pool of providers who are available for online care and that cost that that cost differential is high so really the big opportunity was making it cost equivalent and then you can have the benefits of broader supply of providers, reduce stigma because you can get care of wherever you are, and much deeper information about each provider on which to choose one. So a third of our network at Breakthrough had video introductions. And I love these because we bring in our therapist, we'd, we'd batch them in, in, a, in a nice office we set up for them. We would ask them an hour's worth of questions about what are their strengths, their weaknesses, what conditions they focus on, what techniques they focus on, and narrate that down, edit that down to a two to three minute video that consumers could then watch. Because going back to therapeutic alliance, you want that provider who really gets you. It's funny how much of a sense you can get that from just watching a two to three minute video. Whenever we had a new batch of videos, we would all sit around our, our conference table, watch them. And sometimes we talk about, would we see this therapist? And it was great. It was good to me that some people would say, no, that person's too touchy-feely. They're too analytical. They're too young and so on. And you, it's maybe an unsavory comparison, but it's like a dating site where you want lots of different diversity uh, to to match the diversity of of the consumer population.
0: Yeah. So let's say, Mark, that you, you were running a mental health fund solely for, and I, I know you're a gen, you know, health investor, but also a generalist investor. But let's say you were just focused on mental health. First off, how would you sort of market map the types of companies that are potentially venture-backable within the within the mental health space? Like, What, what are the different types of companies that are the subsectors
1: where... Where there's opportunity right so you can segment it a few ways clearly there's there's telemedicine telehealth uh, of which breakthrough was an example there are what are called digital therapeutics so these are programs that may or may not involve a telehealth program so if people are familiar with amada health is doing this in diabetes prevention which has multiple uh components and we could talk more about i think that's an exciting area where you're combining uh metric tracking tech human person content and a community. Uh, so I think that's exciting. Third is I think they're the AI chatbots. They're trying to do CBT, but an, I'm skeptical on there. We could talk more about why. Companies that are trying to improve biometrics for mental health, which I think is long-term exciting. So right now, we, we don't have good measures of stress, at least in a consumer device. We don't have good measures of mood. Uh, there are some in the literature, but we really haven't, to my knowledge, miniaturized them to the point that you can get a mood ring like right from Fitbit. That's good. But I think there are companies on the horizon of doing that. Question there is, what's the business model? Are consumers going to pay for it, maybe, if it's in the hundred dollars range? Because the real-time feedback of, hey, Eric, you're stressed right now, and you may not have known that, it's a good time to take a deep breath or take a, a break. And then as long as you compare that with mood improvement metrics like and assessments to show people that there's a benefit. uh, This is actually, I think, a, a gap that some mental health companies miss, that people can be getting better but not know it because they're not tracking. Because mood is so abstract Uh, I always could feel that way sometimes we need the extremes order to realize oh yeah I'm really happy or I'm really sad
0: right and so let's analyze each individual subspace and talk about potentially big companies in the space or opportunity in the space so telemedicine companies
1: this is you know this is where I have scar tissue right with with breakthrough because we were the largest online therapy service we started in 2009 we sold the company in 2014 we had multiple acquisition offers we had over a thousand providers in our network. We had signed over 30 insurers. We covered over 10 million people. But the utilization, I think a dirty secret in telemedicine is the utilization is much lower than the promise. I believe telemedicine will eventually be the first line of defense in a lot of specialties, including mental health. Like the three big pioneers in telemedicine, when you look at where, where have people gone tend to be radiology total radiology because you can interpret imaging from afar mental health and primary care like the other extreme is like surgery telesurgery which will happen but requires a a bigger setup so we were the market leader we got acquired and the acquirer promptly fucked up the company entirely (laughs) didn't allocate funding to the degree that they said they would were really slow on executing and that opened up space so if there's a thesis here and this may be Wrong, maybe self-indulgent, but I want to fund Breakthrough 2.0. Go after the insurers. And look, the first first insurer we signed took two and a half years. It was Blue Shield of California. But when we signed them, they suddenly covered 2 million Californians for Breakthrough Mench. Now they could just use their insurance benefit and pay the same copay they pay for in-person care. And, and taking a step back about this thesis, why choose insurers? Because we have a happy problem in mental health of lots of different markets you can go after. You can go segment by condition: depression, anxiety, PTSD, and so on. You can go after different age demographics: millennials versus older folks. You can go after colleges, military, self-insured employers. The reason we chose large insurers is let's take Google as an example. And I hear a lot of companies uh, in mental health going after self-insured employers. They have about twenty thousand employees in the Bay Area. Signing Google probably take between six, 12 months, maybe longer. When you sign Blue Shield, if it takes two and a half years, you cover two million, right? So you spend two, three, four times as long, you get 10 to 20 times the member base. So if you have the patience and the funding to go after those larger insurers, it actually makes more sense. So I, we went after that, but I would say you could find teams that It would make sense to go after military, but you have to build the company around it, right? You probably have to get generals on your on your board and your team, deep rolodex there, really know the VA system inside and out. There should be focused on certain markets. And let's unpack more. How do insurers think about digital mental
0: health? How should they think about it? How 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 does it solve for them? Right.
1: So it's very much it's it's like an large enterprise sale where. You really have to know what the actual success metrics of the large company are, and I think a, a anti pattern here is a product and tech heavy team who believes that this is a product driven market, and unfortunately, it's not. And that's sad for me to say because I'm a product focused uh, entrepreneur, but it's really sales and marketing driven. First, sales in order to get the reimbursement, and then marketing to get the patients. And patient acquisition is the hardest part of this market. And you'll see teams say, well, we just, we just get the insurers and they'll market us. Here's an example. We signed Aetna to cover something about 2 million Texans uh, in Texas. And they were supposed to, by contract, put a little icon on all the providers in the Texas Aetna directory that were affiliated with Breakthrough. It took six months for them to add that icon. I would, I was like, I could fly down to Texas find the IT administrator, take them out to dinner, sit down with them and put this icon there faster than this would take. But they just don't feel urgency. It's a lot of priorities. So I think you really have to understand what and so what are the possible metrics for these insurers? The the most common one is cost reduction. And they won't always admit that up front, but they, that just directly goes to bottom line. But some of these are regulated to the degree that they can't actually make more than a certain profit cap. So it's not always cost. Sometimes it's improving the provider quality so that they can gain member retention, patient retention. Uh, and it's not every patient that or every member that they want to retain. They don't want to retain their high flyers the people that people generate a lot of costs. They'd like to retain healthy people who like that there's this benefit available. Sometimes it's compliance. Uh, a cool example here was when we worked with a large pair in California, they were under scrutiny by the state regulator because they were out of compliance with proximity requirements. If you have a certain member on your roles and they do n- there's not a provider within a certain distance, I forget what it was, like 25 miles, then you were out of compliance and at risk of fines and lawsuits. So we went with this payer to the state regulator and said, we want to do online care. Here's the evidence that it works will this satisfy the proximity requirements and the regulator came back and said yes so now suddenly we help them solve a compliance problem it's one of the reasons i love telemedicine is that it's not just one value prop it's like three to four value right. props and you can adjust the the pitch to the insurer based on what's important but i think there's a more general question like how do you learn what's actually important because i don't think often often you can take at face value what these executives say and sometimes they don't honestly know they've been there 10 20 years it's sometimes a cushy job. And so this is a, a threat and an opportunity. The threat is they don't sign because they don't actually know what they want. The opportunity is you set the goalposts. You come in and say, here's how to think about telemedicine. Here's the success metrics you want to set. And you might even be able to set the goalposts a little lower so you can meet them, but not too low so it seems like you're sandbagging. And that's part of the thing we learned. There's one other important aspect, which is how involved you get in the delivery of care. We wanted to be a ideally pure marketplace we don't manage the providers it's it's just we are connecting them or we're selling white label and we actually we we started with white label and sold a few contracts but nothing big and what we learned is the insurers wanted a turnkey solution that combined the technology that was HIPAA compliant easy to use and the provider network what insurers are used to buying is clinics a clinic that comes to them and says we want to accept your insurance we will serve your patients, we would like this rate, there's a negotiation, and that process can be done in three to six months. We were coming in trying to sell technology, which is a totally different workflow. You come in, you're trying to sell the CTO, you have to go through a HIPAA compliance thing, and at the end of the day, the, the economics are not as exciting as selling delivery of care. But I didn't start breakthrough to be the head of a clinic, I wanted to be the head of a technology company. And that's just even what the end customer wanted. So after a lot of thinking and research until we said, okay, we are now suddenly effectively a clinic. So we went to the insurers basically hacking the sales cycle and come in and saying, not only do we have this tech, we are basically a clinic. We want to serve your patients with our providers. We're just like in a clinic, except our providers happen to deliver online care as well. And we now manage the recruitment of providers. We train them, we kick them out if they aren't performing well. And that's what worked, but that's a lot. And tech founders who didn't who weren't looking to start a clinic are understandably reticent about that. But I think that's actually what the market is is needing. Right? Is that what Two Chairs is doing? They're doing it in person. I believe they are working on reimbursement, and I think highly of Alex. It's early for them. I think I would guess that they'll eventually get to an online component. It's an interesting strategy to start with in person because it's a proven model. But if you want to build a venture backed business, you probably have to eventually go online or do something more like what Omado is doing, where you're not just selling therapy, but a comprehensive package ideally paid for by some payer that combines and we can talk about like these four things of human involvement, metric tracking tech, content, and community. Yeah. Are
0: you bearish on sort of the one medical for X? You know, must pick a segment and build a one medical for it? Or do you think that there won't be venture returns unless they have some sort of online?
1: I think the I think the economics just get a lot better with online, right? You can serve a statewide, nationwide, and eventually a global wide audience. You reduce your your capex on having to have these fancy offices. I do think that one like it has clearly had some measure of success, but I think that the, the greater margins is going to be in in virtual clinics. There might be this hybrid model where you have a clinic, but The bulk of the sessions happen online. And actually, funny enough, an interesting comparable might be where I think food companies are going. Like when there are self-driving cars everywhere and you have like cars optimized for pizza delivery, there will be, I think, restaurants that have a small footprint for in dining in, but the bulk of their business will be delivery of food. And I think you'll see some that are like warehouses where they're just producing all the food, but you can't actually go in and get a pizza there. And my guess is the economics of that are better.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about telemedicine for a second. What are the most promising telemedicine companies just broadly in digital health? And what's it going to take for telemedicine to be more mainstream?
1: So I think for it to go mainstream, unfortunately, the number one driver is going to be reimbursement, which is partly driven by regulation. So the Centers for Medicare, Medicaid, CMS recently issued this year new CPT codes. Uh, codes are, CPT codes are what doctors have to use to get reimbursement that expand use of telehealth a big restriction there is you still to my knowledge have to be in mental health serving a patient who's at a originating site which is a hospital some non-home place and so that greatly limits where you can serve people if they have to go into a hospital Uh and also there's some restrictions around only going to rural areas so that's one. Second is consumer education so let's use teledoc as an example teledoc is public now over three billion dollars They're going to do $400 million in revenue this year. They have 22 million paid members, but only 2.5 million visits from those members. So you might wonder, how do you have 22 million paid members but only 2.5 million visits? That's a utilization rate of only 8% of people that are supposedly being paid using the service. Well, so they sold self-insured employers on capacity. They make money just by having the ability to see a provider and now they're focused on primary care they do have behavioral mental health services but the bulk is primary care so i think an, an, an enable will be the education that teledoc that, that companies like Teladoc and kaiser are creating where people become more aware of it and also uh, the comfort of all the players both the startups and the the buyers of, of paying for capacity because if you just do it on utilization if you do, like you look at eight percent of Teladoc's members uh, using sessions, you know, trying to get a per transaction feeling that the revenue gets a lot smaller. And you can look at the public docs on on the bulk of the revenue comes from this capacity, not the utilization. So when I see startups saying, well, we're going to just earn like $10 or $20 per session. Well, if you do the math on, on how many sessions you need to get to $100 million in revenue, it's a lot. Right. So let's talk more about regulation. How helpful is it? How hurtful is it? How should startups think about
0: regulation? <laughs>
1: Part of this is moot because that regulation is going to exist in the United States, right? Um, but, I, but I think it's fair to ask what's helpful or not. You'll hear different views on that. My my view is it can be helpful. I would like to see it as light touch as possible because the, the, the more the regulation, the more it tends to be rigid and inflexible. I'll give an example here in California, which tends to be more forward thinking in the use of tech. The doctors used to have to uh, produce in person. Uh, I think it was either faxed or mailed informed consent. You could not have informed consent to be virtual for telemedicine. Uh, so someone had to sign some informed consent paper and then send it in. And like obviously that's a barrier. The problem is even when everyone can agree that a regulation is doesn't make sense, it's hard to get all the parties together that are trying to write laws or update laws on lots of different areas to actually fix one. It is what it is, right? So I think the the question is, how do you manage uh, regulation? Do you try and work with regulators or uh, go under the radar? This is an area where I don't think you can pull off an Uber because providers work too hard to gain their licensure. I have to remember it's like over a thousand hours to gain your license in California. So if you try to be some swashbuckling founder, go to a therapist, psychiatrist and say, well, we are we a little vague in this area, but we think it's probably okay. You're not going to get a lot of adoption. You're even going to get people who are desperate and not good. So that was one of the early things we found in our research is these therapists were interested, but they did not want to risk their license. And so what's the ramification of that? We did not do any cross state practice unless the provider was licensed in the state of the patient. Cause that's where the care is considered to be taking place. So, you can't be licensed only in California and serve patients everywhere. What we did help some providers with is getting licensed in as many states as they like. And there are services that actually help with that. You pay some upfront money and now suddenly you can serve people in lots of places. Eventually we will get to a national license that will help. The VA may actually just passed this. So as now as a VA provider, you can see patients anywhere in, in the, in the country, but that's only within the VA system. So I, I'm, I'm hopeful um, that CMS is moving the direction of loosening uh, this regulation. Uh, but it's cer- it's certainly not as fast as I would like. Yeah. And how did
0: you guys bootstrap the marketplace and how will the breakthrough 2.0 get providers on
1: board? So I think this is maybe the number one thing I would look for along with reimbursement is how would you acquire patients? So assuming you want to get reimbursement, it's a triangle, right? Payers, providers, patients, getting providers is actually the easiest it's not easy but you'll find lots of particularly early career providers that want to try this the average age of psychiatrists in the united states is over 55 nice. so you can try It makes sense to try and go for the the earlier career folks who are more comfortable with technology you can get the pairs it's obviously like i mentioned takes a lot of time but no one has actually really scaled patient acquisition Because as we talked about, they none of them is familiar with it. Even if they have coverage, they may not use it that much. So I look for hacks on how you can actually get people to do this. And one that we thought was really interesting was primary care providers and patient assessments. We learned there was a CPT code for assessments on mental health that primary care providers could earn $20 per patient per assessment. So the average primary care office has about 2,000 patients a year. They, per the CPT code, can give a short questionnaire on your mental health, talk to you about it for about five minutes, and earn $20. So that's $40,000 in revenue for a primary care provider's office. One in four people in America have a mental illness. So 500 patients now on that primary care practice are deserving or needing of mental health care. PCPs or insurers are the number one, number two drivers of referrals into mental health providers. So... What we wanted to do was partner with these PCP offices and be the recipient of the referrals of those patients who've been identified as having a mental illness. What is the status quo? These PCPs tend to refer all the patients to just one or two therapists. It's someone they know, someone they dated, they met at medical school. It tends to not be optimized for patients. We want to come and say, we have a thousand providers in our network, over 300 video introductions. Give that patient just our URL, give them a tablet with the site loaded, and let the patient feel empowered to choose the provider for them because you're not going to target the provider on insurance or technique or condition, but the patient can do that. And that was a compelling value prop for the PCP. 70% of psychotropics in, in the country are prescribed by PCPs, but they don't like that because so they don't necessarily know the, the dosaging or the uh, side effects as psychiatrists do. So they would actually rather have mental health specialists do that. And providers, mental health providers know that these referrals are can be a big business driver, but they're not going to go in and sell PCP. So that's where there's a value of a, of a breakthrough 2.0 coming in, brokering those relationships. And another benefit for if you can do that is you don't have to pay the PCPs anything. It's actually illegal. It's called fee splitting if you pay for a patient referral. You have, you, but you can solve all the problems for them, like, like handling the compliance thing and also doing coordinated care where when the session happens on your site, you have the outcome of that filtered back to the PCP and their their electronic medical record so the, the PCP can be aware of what's going on with their patient. So we
0: talked about telemedicine. Let's talk about digital therapeutics. What are mm-hmm. opportunities or white space there?
1: So I mentioned I, I love the Omada Health program. I see startups that are trying to do just one or two components like only CBT courses um, or only a community. And I'm not convinced that there are VC fundable businesses there. But when you can offer this combination of four things, so let's, let's talk, talk about each. One is content. So I think quickly content around how to manage your depression, your anxiety, someone can be useful, especially if it's well packaged. Um, second is a live person. It's probably actually the most important. I'm biased on this. But you'll see product folks from, from the Valley who will say, well, we've been able to do a lot of behavior change just with content. I'm like, How many people do you know that were able to lose significant weight just from content? How many people use personal trainers? How many people use actually live therapists? We, we most people, in my opinion, really benefit from that live interaction. People who can customize the course content. And then there's also a, a proven business model that is larger than everything else that we're going we're to talk about in this package of paying someone for their time. Something it, It's hard to get people to pay for content they feel that they can Google. They understand that if they're going to have a human involved, they're going to have to pay that person for their time if they want quality. And third is metric tracking tech. So a Fitbit to measure your weight loss, for example, with Hamada. Here it could be hopefully some something that is valid on measuring, like, could be galvanic skin response, which is associated with stress. Um, it could be hopefully something that measures mood accurately. But even I think some of the basic biometrics would be relevant. Like if you're gaining a lot of weight, there's some correlation there with, with depression. Uh, a fourth is community. Um, so AA, I think, has shown that this community of peers is powerful for staying on track. So if you can combine all of this, I think what Amada's shown is you can sell that to at least employers, uh, and I believe there are other buyers, in the order of like one to $2,000 per patient. And they've already shown some evidence that it works in programs like diabetes. So I would like to see. I think there's Amada Health-like opportunity for each of these major mental health conditions. Right. Uh, there's an opportunity
0: to build sort of a dominant brand Mm -hmm. Um, mental health that i can't think of one necessarily i don't know if the analogy is soul cycle or weight watchers or or something else entirely but
1: yeah i think it's a huge opportunity it's what it's what breakthrough wanted to build and i think we were on our way to how do you think about self-employed or self-insured employers as a channel it's it's the white whale of digital health startups beyond even beyond mental health and i feel mixed on it so many companies have gone after it. Um, Lantern was the latest, right? I know Alejandro there and they weren't able to do it. Why did Lantern fail? I would, I would defer to Alejandro, but my my what I hear and what I read outside is they just they couldn't sign enough self-insured employers to make that work. And what Alejandro said publicly is what I've talked about here that getting the insurers is the big game and it's hard. And if you don't have that expertise in the founding team, in your DNA, it's hard to bolt on later. So now, when I see pitches from mental health startups, one of my first questions is, "Do you have a sales executive uh, with a deep experience?" So the, I think the major reason we were able to sign insurers. This is a question I get asked all the time, and I, when I say is. We had a secret weapon, and his name was Julian Cohen. He was my my co-founder, whose entire thirty-year career was as a mental health executive. He was the CEO of Signum Behavioral, the, the mental health division. The chief marketing officer of Optum Health, the mental health division of, of United Health. He was the president of the Institute of Psychiatry at Northwestern. He has a master's and bachelor's uh, in, in social work, and, and a master's in public health. Um, so he had a deep Rolodex. And that really matters. Like when he, when he signed on within, I think, two weeks, he had a half dozen executives from Optum in a room listening to me, the 35 year old fresh face CEO saying, please give us two million of your mental health patients. And we learned over time, it's really better for him to lead that conversation than me. Um, but it's, it's, it was evidence that this is not a product-focused market. It's a sales relationship marketing-driven market. And of course, you have to get the sale in order to have the opportunity to do the marketing. So when I look at a team, I really want to see both of those expertise. And then ideally, a third expertise of a doctor, a clinician who understands how care should be best delivered, if there's going to be any management of providers or content, right? So- we talk about telemedicine, we talk about digital therapeutics. You mentioned your dubious and AI chatbots. If, if you anybody has used them, they, I just don't think they're quite there in terms of the sophistication where it feels human-like. I do believe there will be a tipping point. Where it'll be like Eliza 2.0, where you look forward to talking to your AI chatbot. So the big question here is, when will that happen? What's the first company that will deliver an AI where people are like, I like this as much as talking to my human therapist. And I think that's such like a data and algorithm technology sophistication question. Obviously, like having someone like Andrew is a, a good vote of confidence, but you can actually just look at the data there, right? Of how much, how often do people engage with it? I do believe that eventually I would be able to customize and feel human enough. So market timing is the big issue there.
0: Um, we're seeing whether at-home diagnostics or things that are trying to replace the pharmacy in some way. And I'm curious how wide it extends if and sort of where where companies like Nurx go. Like you have birth control on demand, you have uh, prep on demand, but it's interesting to follow just that whole sort of broader space. One DTC to like things like PillPack pharmacy, and see what what can actually win versus what is Amazon just gonna just gonna
1: take? Right. When I look at these DTC digital health companies, I think, why is it DTC? Is it because consumers actually want that, or is it because it's easier for the founders than going after the insurers? So let's take an example of something like Casper selling beds direct to consumers, Tesla selling cars direct to consumers. I think consumers want that because it lowers costs. It's easier than going through a dealership. Digital health, it raises costs go through a consumer. I think a lot of people, and this is proven in the data, 90% of spending paid for by a payer. So I think in many cases, the entrepreneurs are going for consumer because they don't want to go through the hell of a two and a half year sales cycle. Understandable. But we as investors have to say, what is really the demand? And I I think there are self-pay markets that are available. But they're smaller, much smaller than the insured model. So I think the big win, and here's Teladoc as an example. Teladoc works with insurers and employers, and they've built the biggest player in the telemed space. By the way, they've been around for 16 years. They went through a painful recapitalization of the company. So (laughs) this is an area where experience probably helps. But I would believe that there could be a fast follower that takes the best practices. But um, this is a painful market. It's, It's super hard. And I think this also a bit market timing is hugely important because there will probably be some step function up in utilization when some of these regulations are loosened. Um, and there'll be a gradual acceptance of telemed when people's insurance like Kaiser uh, says, Hey, we now accept, we now do video visits and teach people how to do it also devices, right? So now we have these supercomputers with cameras that we're carrying around in our phones. And I, I'm, optimistic of things like 5g internet access will make it easier to have a good tele- telehealth consultation the audio is actually more important than the video if you've ever had a video conference where the video sucked but the audio is okay you can have a conversation but if the audio is bad doesn't matter how good the pixels are you can't have a good conversation what are other examples of unicorns in the digital mental health space
0: are there any no
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm the, depends on how you define mental health so i think an interesting comparable is headspace right i don't know that they're they're a unicorn yet but they're they're reportedly doing quite well Uh, so headspace is, is a meditation app meditation content but meditation is mainly a solitary exercise right and so there i think delivering content that people pay on a membership basis makes sense therapy is to date an interactive experience you have to pay for someone's time now yes you can do cbt but again how many people have personal trainers versus just like go to the internet and and actually pay for content that they can otherwise get for free, like watching YouTube. Like I would believe a CPT app could get traction, but is there, is there business there? Well, I've seen some say, well, well, we'll charge for sending referrals to therapists. And then I say, how many therapists have you talked to who are willing to pay for leave? A, in a lot of areas, it's probably gonna be illegal. It's gonna be fee splitting. B, the average salary for a therapist in the United States, unless I checked, is about 50,000. It's higher for psychologists and even higher for psychiatrists, but they are not used to paying for leads. And what lead generation services do is they do membership flat fee services. So Psych Today, for example, Psychogeduce, I think the largest directory of providers and providers pay a small monthly fee uh, for that. And even then they they complain about it. It's just not a behavior they're used to. So I'm, I'm skeptical that any app that wants to make money through lead generation is actually going to reach VC returns. Right. And let's zoom out even broader from digital mental
0: health into just digital health broadly. What topics are you most excited about from an investing perspective slash where are you most eager for entrepreneurs to innovate or build?
1: I'd love to see improvements in diagnostics. I think a lot of people don't actually know what's going on with them. And if we can ground that in data and better tests, I think it was one of the the exciting things about Theranos, right, um, before it blew up, uh, that we'd be able to, to more affordably figure out through blood what is going on. Like, I'd love to see continuous blood monitoring startups. Um, something like 70% of meaningful biomarkers I've read in the body are in the blood. Um, so I know it's kind of a poison market now because of Theranos, but I would believe there will be uh, a company that that succeeds there. It requires some innovation in microfluidics, but hopefully it'll happen. I think... AI applied to medical imaging interpretation is pretty exciting. Obviously, with with deep learning, we're seeing some performance of AI in interpreting imaging that's better than humans. I actually think also some of the workflow that happens in medicine could be improved. Like, so my my um, girlfriend is a is a GI doctor, and she spends a lot of time writing pathology notes and trying to capture some of the knowledge that happened in in the consult. It seems like an area where you should be able to have. Uh, AI that's good at transcribing, it's HIPAA compliant, it's easily stored in the electronic medical record. I don't know that there's a big company there. You might have to use the data in some way. Um, and another that I'm actually really excited about is clinical trials. It's a huge business. Um, these CROs that manage clinical trials are multi-billion dollar companies and nobody's heard of them. Quintiles, Parexel, Icon, Charles River. So I would love to see virtual clinical trials where you can enroll and contribute data to a trial remotely. I'd also like to see um, a consumer brand around that. So I, I think an Uber for clinical trials, if you can put it that way, could be a huge business, um, whether it's just the finding uh, that happens or the, the actual uh, contri- contribution of, of data as well. You said you had some controversial thoughts. I'm not sure if we got them out. Maybe, maybe we did. I do see some companies that are trying to work with non-therapists, so listeners. Right, what do you and- mean that? I'm bearish. I, I don't. And it's not because I think a license necessarily makes you a great therapist. I would believe, and maybe some of my therapist friends will yell at me for this, that you could be a potentially great therapist without having to go through the licensure work. It's just hard to make the business model work then. And it probably exposes you and the listener to liability. Certainly you can't prescribe medication without licensure. And there, there'll be the entrepreneurs who will say, well, if you, if we don't call it therapy, it's not therapy. That's probably not how regulators will look at it. They, they'll, they, tend to, they don't tend to abdicate their responsibility. They tend to look at something and say, if it looks and sounds like therapy, yeah. it's therapy. Maybe I'll be proved wrong, but to the point, it's it's the business model. Uh, I don't think people are willing to spend as much for non-licensed providers, and there are already actually free alternatives like uh, hotlines that you can you can access. Again, could be wrong. Yeah, the, the counter
0: is that you know if you pay maybe half the cost, maybe third of the cost, and you, you take out people who do customer support who get like eight dollars an hour, ten dollars an hour, and instead of you know listening to angry people, uh, you know <laughs> talk about why they didn't get their product shipped, they they're now listening to people talk about their problems, which would be a lot more interesting to them could you create a marketplace where the unit economics could work out where they're paying significantly more than than the
1: companies paying these customer support reps to, right. to listen in well I think it's telling that that though plenty of companies have tried none has reached large scale and I think that's evidence that this skill set of listening and being familiar with the the knowledge in in personal growth that a therapist gains and just the skills of being gentle enough to uh, to hear someone out, but being firm when it's necessary, it actually has real monetary value. And the people who are willing to do it for $10 to 20, $20, $15 an hour probably don't have those skills. I mean, you'll find exceptions. And it's understandable. There is arbitrage here, right, where there are plenty of people who don't want to go through the stringent licensure requirements. But I think the people who are going to be good at it will, in general, and they'll, they'll earn the financial upside. Not that there's a huge financial upside to it. But I, I think this is an area where I could well be wrong. And then the question is, what is missing? What, what is missing from the, all the previous attempts to do this? And maybe it's provider, we'll call provider here, uh, quality that you really have to screen and train for those people. Um, maybe it is a patient acquisition. It's, it certainly is at least a patient acquisition challenge. How do you acquire people? And it, there's a benefit of if you're not working with insurance, you can target everyone. Whereas what breakthrough one thing we struggled with is how do you market to people who have a specific insurer? That's not a vector that you can target on Google AdWords, it's not a vector you can target on Facebook. And until you accept every kind of insurance or many of them, you have to find ways so you maybe target keywords like Blue Shield therapist. But there's actually not a lot of keyword here. And it underscores that patient acquisition is hard because a lot of people aren't yet searching for online care. And it's effectively a double sale. I have to convince you to not only try therapy pretty hard and to try it online. And I can talk about my, you know, the many value props of telemedicine, but still hard. And people have questions like, well, is it actually secure? Is the FBI or the, the CIA listening in? Uh, is somebody else going to learn about this because it's digital instead of on paper? I mean, Watergate was literally, I don't know, if, you know how many people know this, but Watergate was around mental health records, right? The president was brought down because of uh, uh, the break into a, a provider's office. So um, I, I think. The companies that really trap, if they crack patient acquisition, they can build a big business. Cool. I want to close by giving you an
0: opportunity to talk a little bit about VentureKit. You have some amazing videos, amazing content out there. Why don't you talk a minute or so about what you're trying to do with VentureKit and what people can
1: learn online from it? VentureKit is aiming to be the best educational resource for founders on how to do hard things in startups. And it's just early stage, but it comes out of my frustration as a founder of not seeing good guides on how to get things like hiring and managing and building a financial model building a pitch deck interviewing these, what what I saw that I and other founders were doing is pinging each other about how to do these things. And if you Google for it, you see stuff like founder stories, like Tim Ferriss will interview a lot of founders and that's good for entertainment. Yeah. But like I watched a two and a half hour interview with him and and Joe Gebbia from Airbnb, very entertaining, right. zero takeaway for me on, on how to be a better founder. Um, there'll be motivational um, speakers, like kind of targeting entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs about how to, to be, do startups. But at the end of the day, great founders are trying to improve the craft uh, of, of what they do. And there's just not great a central source on how to do that. And I, I, so I want to get into the deep best practices of how to do these hard things, particularly around interpersonal skills. And that's where I think video shines. So I started with some articles. That's pretty crowded because part of part of my like, I really believe in the mission, but I also as as a new investor want to meet great founders and I want to show the kind of value that I can provide. And so it's pretty crowded in doing that in articles. I did some podcasts, but I saw really I think the white space for investors like us uh, and for this content is is video Um, and YouTube is the second largest search engine in the world, so I've just started out producing some videos. It's really just me talking at the camera right now, which is me getting my feet wet. But where I want to go is showing domain experts doing what they do. Because if you haven't been around a top 1% product manager, interviewer, founder, how do you know what doing these hard things well looks like? So I want to, I'm going to get an expert interview in the room and show them interviewing someone and talk about it. Um, if you ever seen the the series from the 80s, Blind Date, it's where you watch these two people go on a blind date and then you see these thought bubbles of, of what they're, what they're thinking, you know, supposedly, and you'll hear expert, like there was an expert uh, dating coach who would talk about what he's observing. And I think you can do that kind of jokey kind of model where uh, you'd have the, the, expert performing a skill. And then you get to talk to them afterward and say, "Here, what were you thinking? What body language did you notice? When, when you were probing this area that the, that the other person seemed to be uh, cagey about, what what signaled to you that that's where you should probe? What did you like about this canon? What did you not like about this canon? And, and I think the, the story format doesn't show how to do these skills as well as actually showing these skills done. Awesome venturekit.co VentureKit.com.
0: perfect Mark thank you so much for coming on the podcast and so happy to have you as village global network leader thank you if you're an early stage entrepreneur we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash Catalyst.